Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June the 28th, 2018, and this is episode 2240 of the Survival Podcast. You know, 2240 times we've gotten together for new episodes of the Survival Podcast, and today... It is a Thursday. That means it's a listener call show. This is where you pick up your phone and you mash the following buttons. 866-65-THINK. 866-65-THINK. Given this is not live radio, it's a podcast. Uh, you can call that number at any time and leave me a message. And if you do it like the people you hear today, there's a pretty good chance you'll end up on the air. Um, I would say 50% of the calls that come in sooner or later get on the air. So if you don't get on the air in a while, try again. Odds are you'll get on. Follow the formula. What is the formula? You call from where? A quiet area, not from the back of a motorcycle, not while running a chainsaw, not while standing next to the copy machine at work, uh, not by sending next to an exhaust port or driving your car with 280 air. If you don't know what 280 air conditioning is, it's probably because you're too young to remember cars without actual air conditioning. 280 air or 260 air or 250 air means two windows down and the car goes 50, 60, 80 miles an hour. That's So none of that stuff and you'll probably get on the air. Ask your question or make your point. Then give me the details. Follow that formula for every communication with me. You'll be more likely to get through the screening process. Uh, we got a bunch of good stuff for you today. I have, uh, first of all, Nick Ferguson. Uh, Nick Ferguson is actually hanging out at my house for a day or two. And uh, he will be heading down the I-20 corridor back to uh, Louisiana probably tomorrow. And uh, you have an opportunity if you're anywhere in the Dallas-Fort Worth area or in that route back through towards Shreveport, the opportunity to get him to come out and do some consulting for you for a little less than normal because the travel's already in the uh, equation. I'll have Nick on for a brief segment on that in just a moment to talk about that. Uh, I have a question on my best video for aquaponics introduction. It's actually three videos that were done for that purpose. I'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, what happens when a right is called a privilege by the state? When I wrote that down, I almost was going to put, what happens when the, when the state turns a right into a privilege? Since I don't believe that's actually possible. A right is a right is a right. But when the state treats a right like a privilege, what does it lead to? Uh, specifically with the Second Amendment and what's going on in Canada from a listener up there. But I'll talk about how it's really not a Second Amendment issue. It's really not a gun issue. It's a right versus privilege issue. And what happens the moment the state determines a right to be a privilege and how bad it will always get. A question on protecting plum trees from pests. Uh, setting up a travel fishing kit for airplane travel. I kind of covered that in my saltwater fishing show, but I'll give some specific product recommendations for that and some thoughts on it. Uh, transplanting your trees on your property, so if you have seedlings coming up, when and how to do transplantation of them. Uh, getting a mortgage when you try to live debt-free, how do you pull that off? Uh, a question on peacock husbandry. I've never kept peacocks, so I'm going to give my thoughts and ask for your help, those of you that maybe have dealt with PFAL, and I'll tell you some anecdotal evidence that maybe the question isn't that hard to deal with in the first place. 
Uh, and then the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates, and people are freaking out, and there's going to be a, a crashing economy, and oh my God, the end is near. Uh, uh, Chicken Littles, relax. I'll tell you why it really ain't a big deal for now, and why actually I support the idea of the Fed raising interest rates. It has to do with, well, how low they've been, and the only logical thing that one can do when interest rates are negative is to eventually put them in the positive territory and stop paying people to take money. Because that's kind of where we've been with them right now. So we got all of that and more in just a bit. Want to remind you before we get into all this that you can help support our show by doing what? Becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade. I'd like to throw out a call to you if you are someone who's thought about this and not done it up till now. Um, in the end... If you become a member of the Support Brigade and use the discounts, and there's over 70 companies that I've acquired discounts for you to, if you use a half dozen of those a year, you'll probably get your money back. And even if you don't, you get most of your money back. And then you can look at it like, I like this show, I want it to always be here, I'm willing to support it for 20 cents an episode. When I did the math, it actually comes out to 18.3 cents an episode when you go our average number of episodes per year against 50 bucks. If you're military and law enforcement or Peace Corps uh, or first responder like EMTs, paramedics, etc., active duty or prior service, you guys get a great discount. I usually don't tell you how much it is, but it's 25% off any membership term. All you got to do is send me an email with TSPC service discount in the subject line and give me one or two sentences about your service. I don't need IDs or DD-214s or anything like that. Just one or two sentences. Tell me what you did. And I'll email you back with the discount code. Do that before or not after you join everybody else. Just go to survivalpodcast.com. Click on members to sign up. You can see all the methods you do there. I want to remind you, I do take cash uh, by snail mail. I take check by snail mail. I take money order by snail mail. I take silver by snail mail. Uh, the silver is a discount in of itself. Two ounces a year uh, with the price of silver. That's a good discount. Uh, I take cryptocurrency, and I have been known to take barter. So if you want to you know, maybe barter something for MSB, you can get in touch with me about doing that as well. Email me in advance. Don't send me something and think that I'm going to take it because I may not want it. All right, guys, so before uh, I, I jump into your calls today, I have a special guest in studio. We don't generally have guests in studio, but we do today because the awesome, amazing Nick Ferguson is right here sitting next to me in my uh, office in recording studio looking at my fish. And uh, we just took a walk around the property. But, Nick, what the hell are you doing in Texas, man? Well, um, I just came up from Houston area and, uh, you know, delivering some uh, some contraband from mm. <laughs> from across the country from uh, my trip up to Pennsylvania. <laughs> and uh, um, I'm actually going to be heading home along I-20 towards uh, Louisiana. And I just wanted to shout out to the TSP community. If anyone wants like a little mini consult, I'm going to be doing a special deal for anyone in the DFW area or anywhere pretty much in Texas heading towards Louisiana. So, so say I, along the I-20 corridor yeah. out towards Shreveport. Towards Shreveport, yep. And that you'll be available probably tomorrow then, right? Yep, all weekend. Because, like, David, if you're out there, man, like Nick and I are going to be eating uh, Walker's <laughs> Wood jerk Jamaican ch ch chicken wings tonight, and you'll be, I don't know, talking to your dog and making a sad teeny alone, right? And then, <laughs> right? So... So, guys, if you are in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, even probably a little bit west, but then yeah. all the way back, I-20 corridor out toward, you know, Tyler, Longview, Shreveport, anywhere there, and you've been wanting to have some professional consulting, this is a chance to, to engage Nick's services and really not pay any travel fees, which nope. 
if, if somebody's going to have you for like a couple hours and you yep. have to travel, they'll probably pay more for your travel than your time, right? So, yep, uh, exactly. So, I mean, give people just a quick idea for those that maybe haven't heard you on a lot yet, um, what you can do for people. Well, basically what I do is um, I help you troubleshoot any problems that you're having on your property with water management, you know, It's, it's why is all my shit dying when I try yeah, to grow it? Yeah, why right. is all my stuff dying? Man, I, I show up on people's properties when they're when they're putting in stuff and I it's not unusual for me to save them thirty grand in thirty minutes. Just in avoiding mistakes. That's that long term look. Yep, so yep. if you're already got stuff going on and you got problems that can help you, but the best time to get him involved would be like before you make decisions. Right. Because like You know, and I do this for a living, and I've made some decisions that I regret. Nick's made some decisions that I regret. But the, the beauty of a consultant is, like, we already did that. Right. And we can tell you, don't do that. So, guys, um, you just get in touch with Nick. Do you yep. want to tell him how to do that? Yeah, just shoot me an email, nick at homegrownliberty.com. And uh, he's here, and I'll make sure he checks his email. I'm using him as slave labor today. He's going to be out sweating in my greenhouse while I'm <laughs> recording. But, uh, Nick, uh, th number one, thanks for bringing the contraband. Uh, thanks for bringing me some cool other things, and thanks for being here with us over the weekend, and thanks for throwing down with some really good chicken wings while David suffers along with his talk. <laughs> and uh, and hopefully we'll hear from somebody. And uh, you got stuff to do, man. I gotta get I gotta yeah. get record. So all right, guys. And, and really, it's it's kind of cool that he's willing to kind of do a few things for me in the aviary and all that I've been meaning to get done and just haven't been able to. So he's he's a super nice guy, and if. Uh, I mean this, like, you pay Nick some money to come out and look at what you're doing, and even if you're just doing a few gardens or something like that and setting up a compost pile, um, his ROI is almost instant. And, and the things that you won't do wrong uh, and, and the money you won't waste and the money you won't blow and the results you will get now instead of three years from now when you figure it out yourself – um, it's it, it's the best form of insurance on your homesteading you can do is to get a good qualified consultant like Nick take a look at things. With that, I now have a question from Jake Robinson up in uh, Middle Tennessee on aquaponics. Well, I, I, I don't know really that there is a video, but there are three videos that I have linked to all three of them that are basically a tour of of the three, and it's now four, but I don't have a video of the fourth one really yet, and because it, it's not done yet, it's not even done enough to be done enough for a video to say this is what's going to be yet. Uh, but the three that are active and working on my property, and it, it, I, I think that's a good intro because well, one you're using IBCs and one uses IBCs probably differently than you're going to. Uh, because the IBCs we used are used as full IBCs as uh, storage batteries for water, which is what really your aquaponics tanks are, uh, and with fish living in them. So be because of that, maybe it's going to be laid out a little bit, but it is an IBC, so it, it won't be foreign to the people you're talking to about using the IBCs that you have on hand. Uh, and then the second one does a walkthrough of my metal tank system, and then the third one of what we call the Miyagi, or the timber frame pond. And, and what I like about that is a way to introduce people to aquaponics is it shows, like, here's all the different ways you can do it. And it's not all the different ways. There's a million ways you can do this, but it's they're each different enough that they will give people the the, the concept that 
It doesn't have to be ugly and industrial. It could be as pretty as you want it to be. It can be a water garden that grows plants. It can be a water garden that grows fish and a little bit of plant life. Uh, it can be a very intense, it can be whatever you want it to be. And I think that's what people really need to have as a takeaway with aquaponics. And, you know, what what I've discovered is that it, it's it's the reliability of production. That, that That's what I love about aquaponics because... Yeah, you might have to play a little bit with some balance on nutrient or whatever, but in the end, the plants always get watered. And uh, they always get the right amount of water, whether we're doing ebb and flow or we're doing uh, wicking beds or whatever. We don't overwater, we don't underwater, and, and, and that takes away a lot of problems. And then we can focus on just nutrient requirements. And with wicking beds, you know, that's really simplified as well. The other video, and it's long, but it may be a good one for people that really want to get into the technical aspects of it without getting too overwhelmed, is my Ask Me Anything video, which is a little bit over an hour long. And uh, there's a few responses to some negative type feedback questions there with people that for some reason or another hate aquaponics, think it's killing the polar bears, whatever eco-Nazi bullshit. Uh, plastic is killing the planet. And, you know, they're sitting there typing on a plastic computer bitching about your plastic pipe. It's, it, it's just – but most of the questions that came in for that were very proactive. I want to know how and can you do this and should you do that questions. And I think it gives people a real – what it, I think it does is you're not going to watch that video and then be able to remember everything in it. You know, that video is a summation of what I've learned in the last three years of actually doing this stuff. But what it shows is whatever your concern, we, we've dealt with that, we know what to do. And it's not that hard. So that people, maybe it takes away their fear. So that, that's where I'd kind of start them. I have links to all of those in the show notes. But I'd also say, like, I don't know that we really need to rely on, like, when people are, like, not sure a video is, but like showing them just anybody's video of an active system. Because I know what, what won me over to permaculture was seeing uh, two things. One was Jeff Lawton's Greening the Desert. That was my holy shit moment with permaculture. Uh, but then what really, like, that opened me up. But when I watched Bill Mollison's uh, The Global Gardener Series, it's four. And one was on urban and one was on, like, you know, uh, third world stuff. And it was, like, basically four different aspects of permaculture around the world. And uh, when I watched those, the thing that hit me was, here's a complete system. This is what it looks like when it's working. And I was like, oh, I want that. I want to have that. And I think what sold me on aquaponics, other than my buddy David, who we teased with jerk chicken just a minute ago, um, you know, getting me to do it by coming out and basically doing it for me, which is always a great evangelical way to spread something. Go, go install a system for somebody. And it makes them a believer. Nicole, Nicole, uh, sauce. He loves her aquaponics system because David and I went there and made it, right? Oh, shit, now it's here. And once you start using it, like, put food everywhere. Um, but was seeing systems that didn't just, look complicated. They actually look kind of cool. That made me like, yeah, I, I think I could get into this. Because seeing these like big greenhouses with deep water tanks growing 8,000 uh, 8, or whatever heads of lettuce didn't do it for me. Like, I don't want lettuce. I want cool. I want fish. I want, you know, I want all my weird vegetables and stuff. And when I realized I could do that, uh, it got exciting. And as I got better at it, and realize, like with the system I'm building now, that I could build something that is just beautiful. 
you know, that the soccer mom from Trophy Club, which is a real place, it's not something I made up, but it's a place called Trophy Club, Texas. Uh, but the soccer mom from Trophy Club, Texas would go, I'd like that in my backyard. Uh, that got really interesting to me. So uh, I think it's more than just my videos or, or anybody else's videos, but, uh, and I would say probably the, the best content in the world of aquaponics and backyard growing that I know of on YouTube today, especially that is a regular producer continuously putting out content, is going to be Rob Bob's Backyard Farm. And I, I really love what Rob Bob does. I really, he, I really feel like he's a servant to the community. He wants people to know how to do this stuff. He's making some money on it, but not a ton. Probably, you know, I mean, he'd probably make more money as, I don't know if they have Walmarts in Australia, but he'd probably make more money as the equivalent of a Walmart greeter per hour worked But he loves what he's doing. He wants to share it with others. And, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for Rob Bob. So I'll put a link to his channel in the show notes as well today. With that, let's take another question. This one, uh, more comment on what's going on in Canada with gun rights. Hey, Jack. It's Dan from Southern Alberta. Just want to say thank you for uh, all that you do and everything. Um, just to give you an update of what's going on in Canada. Uh, yeah, we don't have gun rights. We have gun privileges and It is getting insane up here with with what the government is doing. And uh, anytime you want to talk about it, you can always just talk about it because us Canadians are willing to listen to someone who's got some sanity. And I miss being in Texas. It was a beautiful place. Have a good day. Bye. So, you know, what motivated this gentleman to call us from Alberta is guns. But this is really not so much about guns. Is, is it about a right versus a privilege? I wasn't even sure I was going to use this call at first, but when I heard him say they've turned a right into a privilege, I'm like, okay, that's that's got some meat that I can kind of dig into for you. Um, the Constitution of the United States and associated amendments, specifically the first ten of the Bill of Rights, are an assertion of the rights of the people. Not the privileges of the people, but the rights of the people. And... I think one of the important things to understand how it, how it applies to us in this country as a republic is the concept of the entire contract and associated amendments that is the Constitution. And there are people that are idiots that will tell you the contract or the, the Constitution of the United States is not a contract. It's a law, not a contract. That, that's asinine. That's asinine. It is a contract. A law in our nation that comes from federal government is a result of the contract that is the Constitution and the powers conferred thereof in the contract. Okay, it's pretty simple. That, that's how that works. The 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 senators and congressmen and president have been given the power to institute, execute, repeal, etc. Laws through contractual power designated to them through the Constitution. Any, any first-year law student or somebody with an IQ over 84 should be able to comprehend this. The nuance that is very difficult for people to understand because it seems so counterintuitive is who is the contract between? Who are the parties of the contract? You, you would think the federal government is a party to the contract that is the Constitution. It is not. The federal government is not party to the contract that is the Constitution and I say it is the result of the contract. It was formed. So let's say that you and I and Bob and Tim want to create an LLC and be equal partners in it. 
we would we would do something called an articles of incorporation and do formative paperwork to make the corporation. And there's certain things we'd file with the state, etc. Everybody would sign a piece of paper agreeing to certain things. And those articles of incorporation would dictate how the corporation runs. Um, in other words, what's my role? What's your role? What percentage of ownership? What capital do we tender? Uh, how are decisions made? And it might not be as simple as, well, Jack's the manager, so he makes the decisions. It may be that Jack is empowered as the manager to make decisions up to including X, Y, and Z. Uh, expenditures over require consensus of three-fourths or 50% or two managing partners or a, a, a plurality of votes. So if I have uh, 45% of the company and then it's divided them up amongst three other partners. I would only need one partner siding with me, but it would take all of the partners together to overrule me. Like, there's all different ways that would exist. And if we were forming a company called Fish Tanks LLC, Texas, you know, Texas Fish Tanks LLC, I just picked that randomly because I'm looking at my fish, um, then Texas Fish Tanks LLC is not party to the contract. It cannot be because it never existed until after that contract known as the Articles of, of, of Incorporation were executed by the partners. We are parties, and the company is the result. So when we look at our Constitution, the parties are the member states. The federal government is the result. There was a federal government, a central government in power at the time. It was you know, under the Articles of, uh, of Confederation, uh, but... It was dissolved by the Constitution. The Constitution dissolved the prior central government. It cannot be party because it did not exist upon... It's gone. right? So it doesn't exist anymore. So if we created a new company, uh, improved Texas Fish Tanks LLC, and we dissolved Texas Fish Tanks LLC, the old corporation is not party to the contract. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because when something is enumerated in that document as a right, the federal government doesn't get a say on whether it's a right or not because they're not party to the contract. They're the result of the contract. For the right to then go away, it can only go away through an amendment, through agreed-upon means by the parties when the contract was instituted. And what this means is that no law should impede a right. Now, there is a purist belief that rights can come with no restrictions on them. Well, I would say that I have a right um, to swing my fists, as a classic example, that ends right where your nose begins. And so any right inherently comes with responsibilities, and thereby, as long as we're going to exist with a state, whether I want it to have us to have a state or not, we do, that state can place some limitations upon the right, and that limitation should be subject to when my exercise of my rights impairs the rights of another. So my, when my right to own a gun ends is when... I do something that impairs your right, like to not have your child killed, and not the way they're trying to make it with school shootings, right? Because that's that, that somebody else picked up a gun and did something illegal, which is taking the gun to school and then shooting people, which is also illegal. Most of the time in these situations, the person possessed the weapon illegally, 
Not every time, but most of the time. The mere possession of the weapon by the assailant was illegal to begin with. These are all reasonable restrictions upon rights, like you don't take somebody else's gun, because that's theft. violates a right. You don't shoot somebody, because, well, that violates a right. Prohibiting the, owner, the, the, the bearing of arms on publicly funded property, while I don't necessarily agree with it, it, it would fall constitutionally as something that would make sense that the state had the ability to do. So not being able to bring your gun to school, you know, I think we actually should have teachers that are armed, etc., but that is a constitutional, reasonable thing under our, our argument. But anything like you can't have a gun in your home, you can't possess a gun on your own property, etc., clearly exceeds those rights. And then everything in the middle, like, well, what if I'm walking down the street? What if I'm in my vehicle? State by state, that's all. Gray area has to be agreed upon, fought over, etc. Okay? And no matter how much I want it to be my way, I have to acknowledge there's certain areas where we have to discuss that. But the overall thing is a right. When government determines something to be a privilege, there is inherently zero limit on how much they can infringe upon it. It's that simple. And it is inevitable, once something is determined to be a privilege, that it will continuously be eroded if it benefits the state or if the state perceives that it benefits the state to do so. So this is why what started out as reasonable common sense gun control in Canada has become ridiculous and turned law-abiding citizens into felons. And when people say they're worried that could happen here, and they go, no, never happened here. No one wants to take it. It's all bullshit. And the only thing that defends our rights there is the fact that it is enumerated as a right in the Constitution. Even though additional amendments of the Constitution basically says, just because we didn't say it was a right doesn't mean it's not a right. The only thing that's defended rights against the onslaught of the state in our nation, in our republic, has been the Constitution and the Associated Bill of Rights and additional amendments. And this is why it is imperative that we never allow government to clearly infringe upon a right beyond that gray area. Now, I would prefer to push that gray area back to a little thin sliver as far as possible to the other side. But there has to be a point where we say, no further thou shall come. And with the Second Amendment, I know people think this is heresy to say so, but it itself exists as that line in the sand. We're armed, don't F with us. And there is a point that we get there, and I'll, I've thrown this out before, and I will again, and people say that I'm inciting violence. I am not. I'm calling for peace. But what's going on right now with the extreme left in this country harassing people, haranguing people, chasing people, threatening people, that segment of society needs to step back and think about something. And this is a statement of fact. It is not a threat. It is a statement of fact. We're the ones with the guns. We're not giving them up. And if you actually threaten us to the point where we feel that you're trying to harm us, we will shoot you. If I think you're going to harm my son or my, my grandson or my wife or me physically, and I am within legal rights within this country to defend myself if I think I am in serious danger, and it's going to be a matter of time before one of these, these groups of thugs 
actually becomes that threat. It's only a matter of time. Because when people get in that mob mentality and one person reaches out and smashes a person with a bottle or something like that, it starts to build a frenzy. And sooner or later, we're going to have, if this doesn't stop, an all-out war. And people say, well, you can't stand up against your own government. Well, that's been proven wrong so many times it's not worth even arguing anymore. And the reality is the people that would be called upon to do the will of the state, not all of them, but I believe a majority of them would walk right across the line and turn around and stand with us. And in a republic, these changes have a process to go through. And there's not a shortcut to them. That's a banana republic. Right? That, that, that's what that is. That's the kind of republic where you have a shortcut. And, and it's, a, it's a good time for everybody involved in all sides to kind of cool their heels a bit right now. Because if it ever turns bloody, the people that the left are picking a fight with have no desire in general. There are some nuts on the right. I will not deny that. And, and most of the people on the left are not completely nutty. But if you're going to pick a fight, that's not the side to pick a fight from. And the people, by and large, that are exercising this right of keeping and bearing arms, we know it's a right. And here's the biggest difference between a right and a privilege. If it's a privilege and you take it from me, even though I don't like it, I'll yield to it. If it's a right and you try to take it from me, that's another story. And we need to be clear in this country what is a right and what is a privilege. And when someone starts trying to rewrite what that means, we need to remember by looking to the north, at our neighbors to the north, see where it always leads. And you can't show me one country where they started out with common sense gun control, that it didn't move right up to the edge of an outright ban on most of the guns that American citizens today own, possess, and use, and never harm anyone other than in defense, every day. There's 55 million gun owners in America. Combined, we possess more guns than the entire armed services times 20. We have 20 times more guns in the hands of private citizens than there are in the hands of Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, and Coast Guard. We have literally trillions of rounds of ammunition, if we were the problem, you'd know it. But if you try to take our rights, I'm sorry to say, you will feel it, and we will become the problem. There is a process by which rights are rescinded in our nation if they're constitutionally protected. It's called the amendment process. And we would sure as hell be put in a tough situation if that amendment were ever repealed is to where our loyalties lie. But if you circumvent that amendment, I promise you our decision becomes easy. I know that sounds harsh, but I'm just trying to give you truth. Let's go on and take a completely different question, this one on plum trees. Hi, Jack. This is uh, Ray in North Carolina. I got a question on uh, plum tree pests. I have a really nice, messy plum tree, and it's, it's done well. It's in its second year of bearing fruit. 
but my wife and I, we have a bad uh, circulio or cuculio problem. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but I was wondering if you had any tricks uh, up your sleeves for dealing with that uh, pest. I, I've read about the, the cow and clay, or I think it goes by the brand Surround uh, that you spray, but the tree's right in, I mean, the very front of our, our front yard, and I don't know if I want a, a white tree there, <laughs> you know, from, from March until till June, but maybe that's our only option because I, I don't want to use chemicals. So uh, let me know what you think if you got any ideas. I really appreciate all you do. Thank you. Well, I, I'm going to recommend, as I always do when people call in with fruit trees, get on Dirt Doctor, Howard Garrett's um, program. I'm going to read this to you. I, I want to Every time I put this out, people say, boy, that sounds expensive. If you're talking about a tree or a couple trees, it's not expensive because when you hear per thousand square feet, that doesn't mean you need to do a thousand square feet. It means you need to look at your tree, look at your canopy, and I would say go out about 25 to 30% beyond the canopy of the tree. So if the canopy of the tree is a six-foot diameter, you need to be going out about eight foot around the tree with these amendments. Work out your square footage and back in how much, you know, pounds of fertilizer, et cetera. So it ain't like you got to do your whole property, though the average front yard, et cetera, would do well to do that, uh, or at least certain areas in management. And it really ain't as expensive as it sounds because this stuff doesn't cost that much. Um, but there's three rounds of soil feeding in the first year of this program. And I'm just going to give you a link to it where you can get all this stuff, but I just want to kind of give you the feel for it. So in February, you want to mechanically aerate the root zone and or apply organic fertilizer at 20 pounds per thousand square feet uh, and use whole ground cornmeal at 20 pounds per thousand square feet. Again, this stuff's cheap. Dry molasses at 20 pounds per thousand square feet and lava sand at 80 pounds per thousand square feet. Now, that's basically two bags of it. And it's not real expensive stuff. Uh, if you can get it, uh, if you can get it at a, a, a like a rock quarry or, or somewhere like that, a, a materials place like I get it, it's ninety dollars a yard. And, and a yard is, is well over a ton. That stuff's heavy. So it, it, again, it ain't expensive. Round two of the same schedule is organic fertilizer at 10 pounds a square foot in June. 40 pounds of green sand per thousand square foot in June. Soft rock phosphate or other rock minerals such as azomite at 40 pounds per thousand square foot. And then in September you do round three. Organic fertilizer again at 10 pounds a square foot per thousand square, 10 pounds per thousand square foot. Uh, and Solpo Mag, which is magnesium sol, uh, supplement at 20 pounds a thousand square foot. And clean wood charcoal can also be used. Uh, you can see Terra Petra on uh, Dirt Doctor. So that would be your bio charcoal you can use. There's a spraying schedule here. And in your first spraying, you spray Garrett juice and cornmeal tea when the buds are pink. And then drench the root system at a gallon per thousand square foot, okay, uh, with Garrett juice. And that is a gallon of concentrate into the right amount of water, which will be between 32 and 64 gallons of water per thousand square feet. Second spraying, use the same mix after the flowers have fallen off. And the third spraying, about June 15th or a little later in northern locations, do the same thing again. 
Fourth spraying, which will be your last week in August through mid-September, uh, do a spray again. Now, your fruit's long gone since then in most instances, but what we're doing is feeding the tree and getting it as strong as possible before it loses its leaves in the fall. Um, there's an alternate program that will, will save some money. Uh, that uses a little less of everything, and it's, it's really pinned down if you're really on a budget. For pruning, he recommends to do as little pruning as possible. And what I've learned with pruning fruit trees is if you never prune them, you never have to, except maybe you'll prune out a cross limb or something like that. If you prune them into that nice shape, you have to prune them every year to maintain them. I've got two peach trees right now with limbs falling off of them because I pruned them into that beautiful vase shape and then didn't prune them enough before the season came on. The fruit weighed so much it caused them to split and fall. So there you go. For insect disease uh, prevention using insects, uh, he recommends trigger gamma wasps, green lace wings, and ladybugs. And he gives release rates for those as well. This works. Now, the, it's called Kaleon Clay, uh, the, the caller mentioned. And even with this program, you may have problems with certain pests, especially with plums. They're one of the easier pests for fruit flies and other pests to cause problem with. And the Kaleon Clay, yes, it'll make your tree look kind of grayish-white, but it will work. And it may be something you want to do next year. I mean, you're pretty late for plums this year. Uh, mine are all done. I mean, the ones I got, I got, and the ones I didn't get to are, you know, basically terrible prunes on, on the branch now. Um, so you may want to do that next year. And then do this program commensurate with it. And then the following year, maybe don't do it, and this is why. Your pest cycle needs to be broken. And these pests have used that tree, and they've pupated and they've created another generation that's in the soil and surrounding areas now. If you use the Kaleon clay next year, they're not going to have a place to procreate again as well because they're going to come right out and go right to that tree even with all this amendment. And you probably still will have some. And if you do this for one year and get on this program, it'll probably solve your problem but cold. If you skip the Kaleon clay next year, it may work. But if you get some infection, you still are propagating the species that you don't want to propagate. So I'd recommend it for a year. It, it ain't that big a deal. And, and the reality is these insects tend to get into your plums uh, right about halfway through their growth to right up before they start to ripen. You'll often see plums, peaches, etc. You'll see these little gobules on them long before they start to ripen. And that's where that insect pest bored in there. And he's hanging out in there, and he's waiting for that fruit. He's in there kind of in a semi-pupated state. He's waiting for it to mature enough to be good to eat, and then he's going to start chomping on it. So you, you see the fruit try to heal itself with this little gobule that comes out, like somebody put a pinprick, and it's exactly what it is. Um, so if you use the Kaleon clay, uh, when you get to the point where you start to set fruit, And you, and you, you know, if it rains or something, you're gonna have to put it on again because it basically just makes a, a, a coating that they just don't like. If you use it up to the point where you get the fruit like three quarters the size of what it's gonna get, by then most of your pests have either shown up or not. 
And you can probably stop by the time your fruit's getting close to ripening. And, you know, it just, it just hoses off with a mister hose whenever you decide you're, you're far enough through the year. So I'd give it a shot with that. Let's go ahead and take another one. This one on, uh, fishing when you are traveling. Chat, can you recommend a saltwater kit that I could, uh, fit my suitcase background? is that um, a couple years ago I went to Alaska, and what I did there was I just went to Walmart when I arrived. I bought a grill, I bought a fishing pole, I bought a, a reel, and I caught some fish, and I had a great time. And then uh, when I left on my way out of town, I camped at a campground near the airport, and I took the reel off and put it in my suitcase, put the pole and my grill and everything else, I put it in the dumpster, and I have to say that dumpster was overflowing with similar items, uh, at least five or six grills, uh, several fishing poles, and things like that. There's a business there somewhere, I think. But um, in the future, I'm going to Vancouver, British Columbia, and I'm going to Hawaii, and I'd like to bring a fishing pole with me um, that I could use in the surf. Um, so... I really, the only thing I might have already is a reel, that one from Alaska, but I'd be willing to start all over. So uh, I am going to go back and listen to your uh, saltwater fishing episode, but I don't remember you suggesting a travel kit there. So anyways, any suggestions you have would be awesome, and um, thanks a lot. So, yeah, I don't know if you were talking about the saltwater show I just did or the saltwater show I did three years ago when you, because I did talk a little bit more, I think, about this in the recent episode. So I'll try to be brief here. But the absolute best rod I have found for this is the Browning Safari Travel Rod. It comes in a hardened tube. Uh, it's available in all different weights and lengths and, and what have you. And I believe the tube is the same length. Uh, no matter which version you get, uh, because even the ones that are less pieces, there's enough space in there for them still to fit in that tube. You might want to email Bass Pro Shops customer service if you're getting some of the longer rods and make sure the length of the tube or check in the product description, but I have a link to this rod. I have the four-piece rod uh, in medium light action, and I love it. Uh, it works really well teamed up with a Mitchell 300, But the Akuma Avenger reel has become all new reels I'm buying now are the Akuma Avenger. Uh, and an ABF-30 with that medium light teams up really well. You, know, you mentioned Alaska, maybe going a little bit bigger fish. You want to, might want to go to like a medium heavy or a medium action in a six and a half to seven foot length in that travel rod with like an ABF-40. That's a little bit bigger of a reel in that Akuma Avenger. And I love that reel. Uh, I think it's one of the best buys on the market. I still, again, Mitchell 300s and Abu Garcia uh, 30X are, are both great reels as well. But something in that class of reel and that class of rod is, in general, the most versatile. We can bring in really big fish on that, but when we catch a two-pound grayling in, our, uh, in Alaska, which is actually a really big grayling, but it's only two pounds, or a little half-pound brook trout or something like that, or a char, we don't feel stupid. Right, We don't feel like Babe Winkleman from the 80s. I don't know if you guys remember this guy, but this guy was my favorite guy to bust on. when the you know, there, was like, there was like only five fishing shows back then. There was like Bill Dance and Jimmy Houston. There was, this, there was a couple others, and there was this clown, uh, uh, Babe Winkleman. And this guy's just an idiot. He'd be out there with like a heavy action bait casting bass rod. 
and I mean like heavy action with like 20-pound line on it, and he'd be out there fishing for largemouth, and he'd hook this largemouth. It'd be about an 8 to 10-inch largemouth. He'd be like, woo, and he'd like set the hook like he was setting it on a freaking uh, billfish or something, and he'd hold his rod and he'd start cranking, and that fish just looked like a water skier coming across the water. Uh, you don't feel like that when you kind of drop down into that medium light, six to seven uh, foot length to medium, even medium heavy action rod, teamed with that kind of a reel. Uh, I have a link to both the rod. The rod, the only place I know to get that rod online is Bass Pro Shops. The only place I've seen it, it's not available on Amazon, so I don't link the Amazon there. The Akumas, uh, Avenger Reels, best prices I've found is actually on Amazon, so I have a link there. Uh, and they run from an ABF 20, it might even go smaller down to a 10, up to like uh, uh, an 80. And I have like a 65, which is a pretty big surf fishing reel. You don't want to be in that range. You need, uh, I'd say the 20 is a bit light. It's more of like a trout rod. Um, the 30 and 40 seem about the right size there for this type of application. I, I always travel with a cast net when I'm saltwater fishing. I mentioned that in a recent episode. But I like a 5 to 6 foot cast net. That'll fold up and fit in your toolbox or your, 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 uh, your, your suitcase really well. The Browning Safari Rod will fit in a standard, not a small, like the little ones that go in your overhead, but a standard size roller board, it will fit in there. Again, you want to get the, I'm sure in the product description you can get the measurements, make sure it's going to fit in the suitcase you think you're going to put it in. Other than that, what I'll do is I'll get one of the little, you know, small, uh, like, tackle box inserts, hard case type thing, you know, something that's the size of a, you know, um, I don't know, uh, six inches by ten inches or something like that, usually two-sided. And I'll just make sure I have a good assortment of weights and hooks. And if I'm going anywhere in particular where I think a certain lure might work, a few of those lures. I have no problem picking up extra stuff while I'm there, especially stuff I can bring home. The big thing you cannot bring home is a rod unless it folds up or breaks down or something like that. So that's the big money saver. The other thing is if you're going to be using live bait at all, I recommend you get an aerator. And I have one called the Bubble Box. It's not expensive. It runs 40 hours on a couple D batteries. Uh, it works really, really well. And I have no problem buying you know, a styrofoam bait bucket for 3 to $5 or a cheap cool. You may buy a cheap uh, cooler and poke a hole in the lid, and there's your, your bait bucket while you're there. It keeps your you know, water temperatures nice and all. Uh, and you just have that little box, and that little box folds up and goes right back in your suitcase. That saves the majority of things. I do want to kind of talk about just vacation in general and you know rental versus purchase with certain things like this. They rent rods where I was at in, uh, in Sanibel Island, pretty decent ones, but they're like $15 a day. If I didn't have a, a foldable rod and I was going to fish more in a couple days, I'd never do that. Do exactly what you did. Take the reel, buy a cheap rod when you get there, and throw the reel on it and give the rod or leave the rod when you leave. Um, there used to be uh, uh, this rod they sold called American Angler uh, at, at a place called Academy Sports and Outdoors, and they have them here and they had them in Florida too. I don't think they have them in most of the northern states. It's more of a southern company. Uh, but they were $7 for a medium, a 7-foot medium axle rod was $7. And before I found this Browning Safari rod, every year when we were on our way to the island, I would stop at this place, I would pick up a $7 medium action rod, 
I'd pick up two of them so other people could fish if they wanted to, or if I broke one, I didn't have to go back and get another one. And I would look for somebody, and I would give it away. Did you drive here yet? Would you like a free fishing rod? Here you go. We just did this with chairs and an umbrella. We went to Walmart. We bought two $7 folding chairs, and we bought a $30 umbrella. And we did this because the hotel charges to set up two chairs and an umbrella for you $20 a day on the beach. So one day, we're halfway paid for, and two days we're paid for. We're there eight more days. And we looked for somebody that was going to be there for a while and gave it away, passed it on, said, do this again, do this again. That may seem counterintuitive because, well, you purchased something, and now you've given it away. But always... This is my my you know richest man in Babylon advice of the of the week. Always run numbers. The important thing is not whether you kept it, whether you gave it away, etc. If there's no benefit to keeping it, or if it's not practical to keep it, if what was the cost? What was the cost? Now, obviously, if you can take it home and you have something like a chair that's usable for many years then it doesn't make sense to rent it versus buy it, even if it costs more to buy it. But when you don't have the option of taking it home, and it would be counter to like, well, why, why, would you, why, would, why wouldn't you just rent it? Well, because it costs me more. Because, I mean, if I break it down to $5 per chair a day out there and $10 for the umbrella, which I guess would be pretty close for your 20 bucks to figure it out, um, then the $7 chair I'm ahead in one day or two days, and the umbrella I'm ahead in three. I'm there for 10. It's the same way I make decisions about buying a car. Do I lease it? Do I buy it? Put it in an Excel spreadsheet. With something like that, I put it in an Excel spreadsheet. And I work out the numbers. Always work out the cost of control versus the cost of ownership and then the benefit of ownership versus the benefit of control in any purchase. So anyway, what you did is not a bad thing, but if you buy that rod, it'll save you long term. And I love that rod. I, I think it's one of a, a fantastic fishing rod to itself. Uh, let's take another one. This one on transplanting seedling trees. Hi, Jack. My question is about uh, transplanting of wild oak trees. I have an abundance of uh, 8 to 12 inch high white and red oak trees on my property, and I was wondering the best time and method to transplant them. Thanks, Jack, for all you do. Okay, so this caller also called back with another call that I didn't need to put on the air, but basically said, I want you to know that the place I live is sandy, deep soil, so you can dig. Um, here's the answer for transplanting trees. You can do it any time. The best time is when the tree's dormant. So, I mean, if you look at nurseries, when they dig their trees that they grow in sandy soils for transplant, prune them all up and ship them out of box, they always do that when they're dormant. So you would wait till fall when the leaves drop, and then you would dig up your, your seedlings and transplant them. Here's something I'm going to say about this, though. Oak trees develop a very deep, uh, very strong taproot very quickly, and in sandy soil they go very, very deep. And it is very possible that a one-foot oak tree will have a two- or even three-foot taproot. It may even be deeper with, you would be sure you got to the end of the root. There may be a hair-like taproot go down another 18 inches or more if there's no rock basin down there. They, they are, that's one of the fantastic things about oak trees. They have that deep taproot. 
even a one-year-old oak tree that's 12 to 18 inches is going to have a very significant root system when you go to dig it up in the fall. So, if you really want oak trees somewhere and you have a place with a lot of oak trees and you have little seedlings coming up everywhere, it's probably easier to pick up acorns and either start them or directly plant them and then plant the result than it is a transplant. You can do it. It'll probably work fine. I would do it when they're dormant. Uh, but in general, it's probably, I'm not saying it is, but it's probably more trouble than it's worth, and this is why. If you were to go out this fall, pick up some acorns, throw them in the refrigerator, and then plant them where you want that tree, in three years' time, the tree that grew in place from an acorn will probably be stronger and larger than the tree that was transplanted as a one-year tree, um, assuming they were planted at the same time. So we've, we've, we've planted that acorn that, that, that spring. We transplanted that uh, other tree that fall, so it actually went in the ground sooner. But they both had the same spring to start. The transplant will probably be a little bit bigger at the end of the first year. They'll probably be very close to the same at the end of the second year. And by the third year, the, the one planted in place will probably have overtaken and overall be a healthier tree because it never had its roots disturbed. And that mighty, mighty taproot has gone now 8 feet, 12 feet or more into the soil. And it never was severed, so it had 100% of its available pressure for penetration. So you can do it. I would either do it in the spring when they first come up and they're really little, uh, when they're popping up all over the place, and you can stick your hand down in there and just kind of pull it out intact. You know, you see the little nutling still on there, and the taproot's coming out, and it'll shock you sometimes. You got to pull one of those out, and you can feel the roots break even in soft soil. Uh, or I would do it in fall, but I would really consider just you know mowing them down and uh, planting acorns, uh, and you can you can even you know pick up the acorns as they start to crack and you see them sprouting, and then put them where you want them. I can't imagine that you want to do this with more than a dozen or so trees. Uh, if you want to do it by the hundred, then you definitely want to start them from acorns and, and go from there. Uh, next, we have a question on getting a loan when we're remaining debt-free when we want a mortgage. Hi, Jack. Vanessa here. Uh, this dilemma has me chasing my own tail, if I had one. How do you get approved for a mortgage or buy a home when it's based on your credit report? A credit report is based on debt, and debt is what we try so hard not to get into. What's been your experience or creative ways to buy a property? Thanks for your time. This question used to be a non-starter. It was used as an excuse to why you needed a credit card uh, and an excuse to why you needed other forms of debt. And it was, it was completely invalid when I started the show. That's how, you know, it's only 10 years ago. It was completely invalid back then. Because my answer in 2008, if you would have asked this question, 2009, even 2010, even during the mortgage crisis, before they changed a lot of the rules and regulations was simply this. Go find a bank that underwrites its own loans, have a reasonable down payment. So we're talking, you know, a 5% down payment, you know, so a little bit more than an FHA that was available. Uh, find the right property with the right valuation and the right asking price. And if you've never defaulted on loans, etc., you've paid all your bills, you have some money in the bank, they'll give you a loan. 
the banks, the general bank locations, have largely gotten out of the business of doing mortgages. Mortgages are now done by mortgage companies, mostly. Uh, regulations are tighter. They're still giving people loans that shouldn't have money. And it's very possible the person with no debt load that has solid income and good cash reserves uh, may not qualify for a loan because of a lower credit score than somebody who has a good credit score but really shouldn't be taking a loan. That, that, is, that is truly the case now. Um, the good news is once you get a mortgage, then this problem pretty much goes away. I have no real debt and have had no real debt for other than real estate. Oh, God, like, since 2009, nothing. Uh, we do have a lease on a vehicle. That does help your credit score. But we don't have a lease to up our credit score. We have a lease on a vehicle because it made financial sense. Remember I talked earlier about with the fishing gear. You put it in a spreadsheet. There are certain vehicles that leasing them makes economic sense no matter what you want to do. Even if you eventually want, if I wanted to buy the, the forerunner we have right now, I would have still come out ahead by leasing it for three years and converting it to a buy. Massively. Right? Like there's no, so I'm not saying to do this, but I'm saying like leasing a vehicle or payment on a vehicle does help your credit. Because you have a, a debt that you service, and a lease is considered servicing a debt just like a purchase loan is servicing a debt. So I am of a belief, especially with where interest rates are, and we have a question about interest rates coming up, that if you're going to buy a car, in many instances, it, it does make sense for you to go ahead and take a loan out on the car, because most people don't have $20,000, $30,000 put down anyway. So just a car loan and paying all your other bills will probably get you into your first mortgage with an FHA 3% down mortgage. Once you do that, as long as you pay on that mortgage well, when you go to move to another property, you're going to be able to get another loan. Would I say that in some instances it might make sense to take out a loan today to get into that first mortgage, even though I used to advise completely against it, and I would say it might. It might. If you do this, this is what you have to do to protect yourself. You are now going to buy a rattlesnake. Think about it that way. We're going to get a MasterCard or a Visa. It is a rattlesnake. You can keep a rattlesnake in your home and never get bit if you follow certain rules. And the first rule is we never touch the snake. Do you know that you can keep a rattlesnake for 20 years and they'll live that long? You can feed it, you can house it, you can take it out of its cage, you can clean its cage so it doesn't have live in its own poop, you can do everything that you need to do. And literally, if you follow every single rule... It is almost impossible for you to get bit or anybody else to get bit. You have to have the right kind of cage, the right kind of security for the cage, the right kind of equipment. But you can, using the proper tools and training, never get bit by a rattlesnake. What do you think is going to happen if you say, I don't need tongs. I don't need to take the snake out of the cage before I clean it. He's on the other side of the cage. You might get away with it for a while, but sooner or later you're going to get bit and go to the hospital. And hopefully not die. Okay? If you don't follow the rules with the credit card, you're going to get bit.
And it's going to be how much anti-venom do you need and how bad is the bite. Let's not do that. So this would be the rules. If I was going to use a credit card to build my credit, I would come up with certain expenditures that are already budgeted into my airtight budget. I spend this money anyway. I'd go get me a shiny credit card. I would pay those bills, and I would instantly pay on that credit card. I mean, not I'm not waiting for the bill to come. I let's say my grocery budget was for this particular uh, week, two weeks, whatever, was two hundred fifty dollars. I went to the grocery store, two hundred fifty dollars worth of grocery store, uh, stuff. Instead of pulling out the debit card, I pull out the credit card. I pay it. I get home, I send in the payment. It's just like I wrote a check to the store. But it creates activity on the card. Here's the thing that my wife does. My wife has a Kohl's credit card. When I found out at first, my, my, my head almost exploded. My brain almost came out of the top of my head, splattered off of the ceiling. Why do we have a department store credit card? Ah! And she said, Calm the hell down. I generally do that when my wife says to. She said, you don't understand. They have sales where you get 10% or 20% off at times. So you get a bunch of Kohl's cash, which is credit for future purchases if you use your credit card. I don't care. Settle down. Okay. It's my wife. I'll do what she says. Maybe. There better be good. What I do, I go to the store. I buy the shit on the credit card and I get the discount. I'm starting to have my eye twitch and my ears twitch turn red, and she said then immediately, before I get out of line, I take my debit card out and I make a payment on the credit card for the amount that I just did, so that there's never been a, it's immediately paid, because they let you pay on your credit card balance at the store. And I went, um, I'm not going to lie, occasionally if I see a credit card statement from Kohl's come, I look at it, there's never a balance on it, so I don't lose my shit, but... I think you're playing with the rattlesnake there, but that would be another example of being able to do that. There are credit cards that you can pay your credit card bill online. And you can literally link it to your bank account. And you could make the purchase in the store, put your bags in the car, turn the car on, let the air conditioning cool down, sit in there, open up your bank app, and pay your credit card bill before you put the car in gear. If you feel you need to do some credit card activity to build your credit because you tried to get the mortgage and your score was 20 points too low or something like that, and you tried first and they said no, well then that's the kind of system that I would use to do that. Here's another way that you can build credit. Go take a personal loan from the bank using money in a savings account as collateral, they'll give you a personal loan. Make two payments on it. Make sure it's one with no early penalty interest payoff and then pay it off in full. It'll spike your credit when you pay it off. It'll also drop right back down. So do it right before you're going to apply for the mortgage. So pay it off, apply for the mortgage. Boom. There's a lot of things like that you can do, but only do them if you have to. Go see if you can qualify. Like people say, well, I'm not going to qualify. Well, how do you know? Have you tried? So go try first. And generally, card debt is sufficient. And if you have student loan debt you've been paying on, it's more than sufficient. Don't go do it just for that. But if you happen to have it, paid student loan debt, paid car loan, generally you can get a mortgage. If you have the right income to expense ratio. But here's the other thing. If you ain't spending money on credit card bills and you're living debt-free, you should have this thing called surplus income. 
And you should be able to go into a house with maybe, you know, if you save up for a few years, 10 to 20% down. The ability to procure a loan changes dramatically. The lender is much more willing to take a risk because you're putting more skin in the game. Here's where that's gotten difficult, too, though. It's the first house that's hard. And I, I want to say this to be fair to people, especially young millennials who are trying to get started in life. And what's happened is rents have increased so much over the last 10 years that the kids are sitting, and I say kids, you know, 20-something's a kid to me, even early 30s, are sitting in an apartment, two-bedroom apartment, and they're paying $1,150. And in their market, for about the same money, they could get a three-bedroom house to start building equity. But they don't have a lot of surplus. They can service that amount, but they can't save at a rate high enough, including continuing to save for their long-term retirement at 10%. And then you're saying save another, you know, save up on, on a $150,000 house, $15,000, plus additional money for savings if we're going to go to a conventional 10% down loan. And they're like, I can't do it. I'm only making forty grand a year. So they can save something, but they can't save enough. And they're literally going in the hole every year by staying renters. It would, they would immediately actually be ahead by going into a mortgage because they start accruing equity. It used to be they would get a discount on their taxes, but now with the new tax code, you probably won't anymore. You'll probably come out ahead. You'll, it was a tax cut, but you no longer need the mortgage to get the tax that you, you, you would get now because they're double the standard deduction. So you got to factor all that into your decisions. But there's the basic way to think about it. Yes, you might need to service some debt. It's a rattlesnake. You make sure you never get bit. And, and try first before you say you can't. Because it's, it's often the case, and a lot of times, like if you're talking to a real estate agent who says, well, I don't think you're going to get a loan, go get a credit card or some stupid show, stop talking to real estate agents about mortgages. Talk to a mortgage lender about mortgages and talk to more than one of them If you're in Texas, I highly recommend you contact TexasLending.com. They are a former client. I've used them for multiple mortgages. If they tell you you can't get a loan, you can't get a loan. If you can get a loan, they will get you a loan. They will tell you everything you need to do to qualify and get you a loan. I don't know that they work in any other states. I know Texas, uh, I'm sorry, Kevin, uh, Kevin Miller, who's the owner, had been talking about branching out in other states. Uh, I haven't talked to them in over five years, but I totally recommend those guys. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. My question is, how do you get peacocks to stay in your yard or local around without having to pin them up? Uh, background is, my neighbor has four peacocks, and his wife wants him to get rid of them. And he has them in a pen all the time. And if I want them, I'd like them to uh, you know, wander around in the yard and forage on their own, but not wander off. I know they're prone to wandering. So anyway, if you have any ideas on how to do that, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Okay, well, this is kind of an I don't know moment. I'm really not sure. So I'll throw out to the audience if you have any thoughts on these. And, and I have different opinions and different thoughts on this. So Nick's here. You know, you heard him earlier. I asked him his thoughts, and he said, good luck. Um, and he said that uh, if you've ever seen the Disney movie Up, and there's the annoying freaking bird in that movie, be warned that that is the sound a peacock makes. 
Uh, and I, I told him I had a neighbor down the road here had one that made it a little bit different of a noise, and it sounded like a horny donkey crossed with a bird. It was just the most obnoxious sound I've ever heard. So, you know, maybe that's why this neighbor's wife wants to get rid of them. I, I don't know. Um, I, you didn't say if your, your, your property was fenced. If it's fenced, any bird can have its wings clipped, and you know the male peacocks have that big fan tail. Clipping their wings wouldn't inhibit their ability to display. And I'm not sure, but if peacocks are anything like ducks, we never had to clip the wings of drakes because as long as the ducks didn't go somewhere, the drakes didn't go somewhere. So that may be the case that you don't have to clip the wings of your hens because the, the males generally don't want to leave the females when it comes to any kind of fowl that, that's like a livestock fowl. Um, so you could clip the wings. I guess they're also free if they left and went away, then those are the ones you don't keep. <laughs> But they could become someone else's problem. So I'll throw this out to the audience. Now, I will say this. When we were in Denver, uh, we went with my niece and her family to the Denver Zoo. And I don't know what particular breed of peacock that they have there, but I've always been of the same impression that they wander, they get away, they cause trouble. But whatever, and they were pretty peacocks. There had to be a couple dozen of those things throughout that zoo, and they, they were not in cages. They just wandered around. They, they spent most of their time, it was pretty hot out, even for Colorado, it was summer. So they spent most of their time in the shade under bushes and stuff. They didn't make obnoxious noises, so... I guess the breed has something to do with it for people that are, you know, you're going to get whatever that guy has. And my opinion, distant though it is, is they're probably the annoying kind or they wouldn't want to get rid of them. Uh, but there may be, like for people that want peacocks, certain breeds that are just less annoying or less wandering or less problematic. Uh, but I don't know the square root of F all about peafowl. So I'm going to throw it out there to the audience. You know, respond in the comments or shoot me an email if you have any follow up information. Put TSPC Peacock in the subject line. With that, let's take our final question of the day. Hey, Jack. I just wanted to hear what your thoughts are on the recent uh, and ongoing um, the, with the Fed raising interest rates. And uh, where do you think this is going to go and what might get impacted first? Um, thanks for the show. Love what you do. Bye. Oh, sorry. This is Chris from Garland. Thanks. Bye. So a lot of people seem really, really concerned about the Fed raising interest rates. And on the surface, raising interest rates would seem bad. But you do have to remember that the last time the federal interest rate was over 2% was in 2008 on the eve of the financial crisis. And what the Fed began doing immediately was cutting the rate. And when they cut the rate to a half percent, people freaked out that it was too low. And when they cut it to zero... People were really freaked out. And when it got to its ultimate low of negative 2%, well, it was the end of the all. Like, oh, my God, there's no place to go from here except down. And and the, the federal rate right now, as of today, is at 2%. And the Fed has announced that they want to raise the rate two more times in the next year. And they want to, their target is 25 to 2.75%. So before we get upset about that, we have to look like in healthy economies, where's the interest rate typically been? And it's been somewhere between one and a half and four percent, and generally in that two and a half to three and a half percent range. 
Now, it's been much higher and much lower, but generally when the economy doesn't need a lot of help and it doesn't need a lot of curtailment, that's where it is. So the Fed saying they want to put it there means they believe that the economy is relatively healthy. And then we really kind of need to look, well, what is the purpose of the federal interest rate other than to screw the American people through the Goldman Sachs and the banking system and steal their money, okay? What What is the, if there is such a thing, legitimate use of the federal interest rate? And what is that federal rate? That federal rate has no direct relationship to what you pay to borrow money. It does have an effect, but it, it's not a direct effect. It's an indirect effect. That interest rate is what the banks pay to borrow money from the Federal Reserve System. That's the discount rate to the bank. So Bank of America borrows money and then, in theory, loans it to you to buy a house, and they charge an interest rate to you, and the spread between the two is their profit. Now, they also have deposits, and, and they can fractional reserve, fake, create money out of thin air. But in general, that's an easy way to think about it. So the cheaper it is for banks to borrow money, the more likely they are to borrow money. The more they borrow, the more they have a need to actually put that money to work somewhere, in some way, somehow. <clears throat> so dropping interest rates negative literally meant that the banks were being paid to borrow money. If you borrow $100... At a negative 1% interest rate, you owe 99 back. And the longer you keep it, the less you owe back. Really? So when the Fed did this, they were pumping money into the hole that was the Great Recession. And they said if we pump enough money in the banks, they'll open up lending again, and they'll start lending to businesses, large and small, And they'll start lending to Joe Sixpack to buy a house. And they'll start lending to, uh, you know, Joe Yacht to buy a mansion. And, and so we'll stuff the banks with money. It, we'll, we'll stuff them directly and indirectly. We'll do buyouts. We'll, we'll get rid of toxic debt. We'll give them bailouts. And on top of all this, we'll pay them to take money that they must pay back eventually. They'll just pay back less than we gave them. So did the banks immediately start doing that? No, 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 no. Think about being Bank of America here. The federal government continues to borrow money that it doesn't have through uh, treasury notes. And they're paying like 1.5% uh, on a T-note. Guaranteed you're going to get your money. And on the other side, the government, through its proxy, the Federal Reserve, will loan you money at negative 2%. Well, what do you do? You buy as much government bond debt as you can because it shores up your bank. Remember they were stress testing the banks? So they want to make sure, like, will Bank of America survive if there's another recession? Well, shit, most of the things they're holding now that's debt is from the federal government. It's guaranteed. So they're making three and a half points on a one and a half percent interest bond by borrowing the money at negative two percent. So they did that till they couldn't do it no more. Well, then what do they do next? These are publicly traded mega corporations. When they have a profit, now they have a profit, they have to pay a dividend. Well, wouldn't we rather pay the dividend to ourselves and to our shareholders? So what they did is they, they would borrow money to buy back their own stock. 
which went on to their their balance sheet as an asset, played more voodoo with the money, and then paid it back at a negative amortization until they couldn't do that anymore, until it didn't make sense anymore. Then they started loaning money. On top of it, the little green shoots from Obama's economy came out, and now, hate them or love them. Donald Trump has been fantastic for the economy. Now, we'll see where it leads eventually. Generally, a booming economy always eventually leads to a recession. The question is going to be who's holding the ball when it happens. Um, how long is Trump going to stick around, and how long is the, the booming economy going to stick around before we go into our next recession? There will always be another recession. But the purpose of those interest rates is throttle and break. This is what most people don't understand, other than screwing the American people. So the Fed looks at the economy and goes, it's moving too slow. Well, let's cut interest rates. If we cut interest rates, then we'll cut bond rates. And because we cut bond rates, people that need a return on their money will be less likely to invest in bonds, and they'll start investing in securities like stocks because they need a higher return. If you can get an 8% bond and you're retired, you don't take risks. You buy an 8% bond and you're happy. If you can only get 2% on a bond and you need 5% to survive on your fixed income, you go into other securities that will pay you know 5% or better. And every other investor makes a decision that way in the end. Additionally, the banks, when they have free access to money, they loan it more freely, and this spurs the economy. Now, you'd think, well, the economy's booming. That's great. Let's just keep booming. Well, how long before we explode? How long before inflation takes over? So when an economy begins to heat up a bit too much, and all of a sudden, you know, we were talking about buying houses earlier. In a house that I paid $85,000 for, um, what would it have been, like 15 years ago? Uh, today, it'd sell for $210,000. Yeah, in this market. Well, that's great if you're holding that house. That's great if you bought that house four years ago. That's great if you bought that house three years ago. It sucks if you're trying to buy that house tomorrow. And right now we have millennials specifically in that rent crunch. A three-bedroom house is the same or only a little bit more or even a little bit less in total cost than a two-bedroom apartment. I want to move into home ownership. But if that real estate market doesn't slow down just for one sector, then shit, eventually we price them out of it and they can't enter the market. And then people that are trying to sell that entry-level house to move to that next-level house can't sell it. So what we need to do is we actually need to make that happen a little bit, not a lot. So if we raise interest rates, one of the many effects is now... Since the bank has to pay more for the money, their mortgage rate interest goes up. So now, right now, since we're at 2% on the Fed rate, mortgages are about 4% on a 30-year loan. This means people can spend less money. This slows down the real estate market without crashing it. It's, it keeps it from getting white hot and crashing itself on the other side of things. So when the economy starts to heat up, you'll see the Fed raise the rates. They, put a, they start breaking the economy to slow it down. It starts to slow down a little too much. They bring the interest rates back down. They start to heat it back up. And that's the balance they're trying to run. Sitting at 2 to 4% is healthy economy. When we're down below zero, we're not healthy. Likewise, when, we have, when they're throwing out 6, 10, 
as high as 18% it's been. That's the opposite of healthy. That's very, very sick. That's cancerous. But, but you know, that's when you're in a 70s-style recession versus a 90s-style recession. That's stagflation. So I'm not concerned at all about this interest rate. I would be far more concerned right now if we were still sitting at a half a point with the stock market in the $24,000 range for the Dow Jones, unemployment at 3%, and rising wages, and we were still at a half percent. I'd be very concerned that we're going to overheat things. We've had already $300 billion dollars repatriated to the United States since the tax cuts. That's how much money companies have brought from overseas back to the United States. $300 billion. That's a lot of money dumped into the economy. Now, it hasn't trickled through and had heavy wage increases for, for, for uh, job uh, holders yet. And the Fed seems to be putting a lot of discipline on this because you'd think we, we should, actually we're in a place now where our target should be somewhere between 3 and 3.5% on the numbers. But it seems to me like they're looking at the wages and holding back in that two and a half to two and three quarter percent target to allow that to happen. Will it happen? I don't know. It's always a gamble, but this is what they're doing. And by the numbers and by the economy, it makes sense. Now, does Trump's trade war go nuclear? Well... Oh, that can throw a monkey wrench at things. Or does Trump win? Okay? He's throwing all these tariffs at Mexico and Canada and the EU and China. This seems like folly, but this is he's playing poker. And he's trying to get everybody to fold at once. The smart way to wage any kind of a war, whether it's a trade war, a nuclear war, a conventional war, you pick an enemy and you win. And if there's going to be another enemy, then you pick another enemy and then you win. So you would go to war with China on tariffs. And you would beat them about the head and shoulders until they give up. And you wouldn't piss off the EU. And you wouldn't piss off Canada. You wouldn't piss off Mexico. You wouldn't piss off South America. You wouldn't piss off the Philippines. Well, that has some validity to it. But if you do it the way he's doing it, and I'm not saying he's right or wrong. I'm saying this is the strategy. All it takes is one to fold. If China comes to the table with the United States and says, listen, enough, you're right, we're not going to totally give up our advantage, because nobody is. But we're going to make major concessions, we're going to reduce all of these things, we're going to open up these markets, just take away your tariffs on Chinese steel at 25% and 15% on aluminum. And Trump goes, deal. Canada, the Mexico, EU crumbles the next day. Because if they don't, they're screwed. They're going to really lose out now. So that's the, so if, if that happens, you'll probably see interest rates go up another half a point because it's going to heat up the economy so much. On, on the buoyancy of good news, they're going to throw the brake a little harder. This is what they're supposed to do. This is what they're chartered to. This is actually the function of the Federal Reserve. Now, the temptation to screw the American people and steal lots of money with a backdoor tax through inflation and through uh, basically creating money out of thin air and then charging interest against it, that's way too much for any giant, you know, elite, filthy, rich corporation to avoid. But they do perform their basic function. They do enough 
to justify their existence and not get thrown out. Because our Congress could throw away the Federal Reserve tomorrow if they wanted to. Like that fast. They have the power to do it. They created them. They can take them away. They won't do it because they're on the payroll. But if they stop working, yeah, then they might. Right? So that's what's going on. I'm not concerned about it. With that, we've come to the, other, the end of another episode, and I want to remind you a really easy way to support the Survival Podcast uh, without really costing you anything is when you're going to shop online, go to tspaz.com first, T-S-P-A-Z.com first. You can see all my reviews on Amazon. You can check out the deals of the day. You can do anything you want, but as long as you go there first, when you shop online, you help TSP in the work that we do. The item of the day that I have for you today is something I brought around a, a little while ago, is for pet care. And you guys know me, I love my dogs. My dogs are like family, and I've told people straight to their face, my dogs are more important to me than you are. I like my dogs more than most people. Not all people, but most people. My dogs live in my home, they defend my property, they provide me with love. If you're a stranger, you don't even come close to how much I value Charlie. So when you hear I use a product on my animals, take that into consideration. One of the problems you have with dogs is their ears get dirty. And when they get dirty ears, they get irritated, they start scratching at them, they get problems. They also get stinky ear. A lot of times you like a dog smells bad, and then you smell the dog. He doesn't really stink, but he stinks. It's from the ears. And I have three dogs. Two of them, you know, it's good for them to have their ears clean once a month, and they don't really look bad. And the other one, my German Shepherd, if he's not getting his ears cleaned frequently, he gets really bad. He starts shaking his head. He gets miserable. You hear him moaning and groaning. And when you clean his ears, it's, I don't even want to explain it, it's nasty. I found these things. They're called AromaCare Ear Wipes. They're made with aloe vera and eucalyptus. You get a hundred little patches, little kind of like uh, Clearasil, like for acne is what they look like, if you remember those from when you were a teenager. Um, they're a little bit bigger than that. And they come in a little tub, screws tight. And you clean their ears. Um, Lucy and Charlie, they get their, their heartworm medication once a month. When they get their heartworm medication, they get their ears wiped, and they get bio-wash, uh, waterless dog shampoo and a brushing. And they do that once a month. Max, he gets his on the 1st and the 15th. He gets his ears cleaned. And now, that's all he needs. After using these for a while. Now, when I first got them, I did it every day for a week, and then like every week for a month. And he was not happy about it. And he's still, I mean, he's a 150-pound dog. And cleaning his ears is hard. Like, I don't know if you ever try to get a 150-pound animal to do something it doesn't want to do, but it ain't easy. If he wasn't well-trained, there's no, there's a dog that could kill me if he wanted to. He never would, but he could. And, and I'm trying to stick a thing in his ear and clean his ear out. But I'll tell you what, it works, and I don't end up, like, this is what used to happen with him. It'd be like 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'd hear him grunting and moaning and shaking his head and being all miserable. And I'd have to get up and make him get his ears cleaned at 2 o'clock in the morning. But after I'd clean his ears, he'd lay down and be happy and go to sleep, and he'd be grateful for it. Now that doesn't happen anymore. This stuff works, and they're like 7 bucks for a 100 of them. And that lasts, if you have one dog, it lasts a long time. This is the best product for this need that I found. I used to use, like, yeah, I'd clean them with peroxide, or I'd make them my own cleaners and whatever. This stuff's so easy, so cheap, works so good, I wouldn't use anything else. I use it on my dogs. If I use it on your dogs, you know you can use it on your dogs too. Um, AromaCare ear wipes uh, for dogs and puppies. Uh, really great stuff. You'll find it at tspaz.com or just go to survivalpodcast.com and scroll down. Next up, our song of the day. It's another audible. Uh, I wasn't in love with John Adams' pick for today's song. And you know what? 
That's okay. And and this is a guy I love. John, if you're out there listening today, don't feel bad. The last couple of days I called an audible on your song. I mean, I'd say 98% of the picks, I'm like, that's great. And that's music is very subjective. And uh, to get 98% out, out of the gate that it's uh, that works for two different people and probably most of the audience is, is awesome. But I just, I don't know, I've been wanting to play some different things for you guys this week. And I played you kind of like an 80s movie song. And it got me thinking of what else was out there. And so I was looking at 80s movies, and I found a, a movie I remember so well from being a kid that I loved this movie when it came out on HBO. And it was called uh, it was called Eddie and the Cruisers. And Eddie and the Cruisers was a fictional band in this this uh, this this movie uh, where Eddie had gotten killed, and was he really dead? And they had had this big hit and all this stuff, and uh, it was just a, a great movie. It tanked. It tanked at the box office. And the album that went with it by John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band tanked. They didn't sell shit. But it became an amazing success story. So I thought I would tell it to you because we're, we're always talking about success on this show and sometimes what we do today doesn't reward us right away. We have to keep doing the right thing the right way and doing our best. So here's the basic version of this whole story. Kenny Vance was the music supervisor of Eddie and the Cruisers, and he met the director of this movie named Marty Davison at a party, and they started talking about doing this movie. And I'll give you the short version, but basically they had some people that put music together for this movie. And after looking at it, Marty asked Kenny, like, well, what do you think? And he said, this sucks, just to be blunt. Like, this is just terrible. This is like a, a Broadway musical guy got together with a jingle writer for commercials and made the shittiest thing they could, but they're so stupid they think that it's good. And he said, well, what do you think? He said, I think we need to go a different way. And he started working on some songs and ideas for this, and in his head the entire time was he had seen John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band uh, at a place called The Bitter End. And as he's reading the script... And he's thinking of the music and the saxophone and everything else. He keeps thinking of the Beaver Brown Band. And he calls them and says, hey, I think I know who the real life Eddie and the Cruisers are. I think I know the guys that are the people we're trying to make a movie about. And they have to get in touch with them because he doesn't even know where they're from. He had just seen them one time. So he gets in touch with them about doing this movie. They ain't made it as a successful band yet. They're just still turning on the road, but they haven't had a big hit. So, and they ain't even had a real album deal. And remember, this is the 80s. You had to get, you know, a real producer and a real album deal. You could not just do things the way you do today. So, of course, they're interested. They put everything together. They developed the score and all the music for the, the movie. Everybody thinks it's going to be a big hit. Everybody you know, on the Beaver Brown Man thinks they've made it. They're going to have the soundtrack of this movie and be a guaranteed overnight success. Movie comes out, falls on its ass. Almost nobody goes and sees this movie, so nobody buys the album. Doesn't sound like a success story, does it? Well, where did I say I saw this movie? Home box office, HBO. So, 
Kenny Vance actually really digs this band. He believes in them, or he wouldn't have started working with them in the first place. They start working on putting out a second album and strategizing about how they can market it. And this band has this great sound, so they can be successful. It just wasn't, the stars didn't align for Eddie and the Cruise. They didn't do their thing themselves. Somebody comes in and tells them while they're working on this album, this second album, this first album ain't sold 20,000 records in a year, and says, yesterday, yesterday, you sold 25,000 albums. And they're like, what are you talking about? Well, back then, when HBO would bring a movie on, they would only bring in maybe 10, 20 new movies a month, And they might play that same movie 7, 10, 15, 20 times a week, two or three times a day sometimes. And when Eddie and the Cruisers hit HBO, it became a mega hit. And people started watching it multiple times. Remember, no DVRs, that type of thing, to hear the music. And they thought, I gotta get this music. And when they realized it was actually John Cafferty's music and that that album was freely available in stores, they went out and they bought them like proverbial hotcakes. And a year after the album tanked, songs like this one, The Dark Side, and another song on there called Tender Years, ended up all over the radio and they became a huge hit. From work they had already done and done their best on, but had believed had failed, It just took time in the right situation for that fruit to set and become golden. So the work that you guys are doing in your lives, understand it may work out that way from time to time. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. She'll never know just to her fear. The blood of the shadow, she walks like a dream.